Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashin. Thank you for tuning in today. Starting in the 1940s, governments across the Middle East began expelling their country's Jewish populations. Almost one million Jews were forced to flee. These refugees went to Israel and other Western countries. Here to discuss this often overlooked tragedy in Middle Eastern history is today's guest, Lynn Julius, the author of Uprooted, How 3,000 Years of Jewish Civilization in the Arab World Vanished Overnight. Lynn works as a journalist, and her work has been published in outlets including The Guardian, Haaretz, and The Huffington Post. Lynn also blogs at The Times of Israel, JNS News, and Point of No Return, found at www.jewishrefugees.blogspot.com. Lynn is a co-founder of Harif, the UK Association for Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. Lynn, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Dan. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, a story of 3,000 years uh, in, in one book. Um, what prompted you to write this book? Well, um, several reasons, actually. Um, mainly because it's an untold story. It's, uh, it's a neglected story. Um, it's not one that um, the Ashkenazi diaspora is particularly uh, knowledgeable about. So that's one reason. The other is my own uh, background. My parents were refugees, Jewish refugees from Iraq, and they came to the UK in 1950. Uh, but I still had relatives living in Iraq, and they went through a terrible time in the 1960s. And I remember, you know, desperate uh, uh, um, attempts to escape. You know, the community there was being persecuted, people were being executed. And, um, you know, this whole story haunted me throughout my childhood. And I was just very kind of puzzled by the fact that nobody talked about it and I thought something really ought to be done and so I I got involved in in this issue so your family left in 1950 and that was um, uh, somewhat early um, what was their experience and uh, what did they see coming what was the handwriting on the wall that impelled them uh, to leave well, 1950 was not actually early. That was the time of the mass exodus of the Jewish community of Iraq. In fact, 90% of the community left between 1950 and 1951. The difference is that my parents went to the UK. They were in, in a small minority who went to the UK, whereas 90% uh, of the 150,000 member community ended up in Israel. Um, now, the writing definitely was on the wall as early as the 1930s when Nazi influence started growing in Iraq. In 1941, there was a terrible massacre called the Farhud, um, incited by the Palestinian Mufti of Jerusalem and uh, pro-Nazi um, officers who seized power in Iraq for a short time. Um, after Israel was declared, um, the situation became bad again. You know, the um, government declared a state of emergency. 
it criminalized Zionism and started arresting people, um, you know, on the slightest pretext. And there were cases of uh, Jews being executed at that time. And my father, he was a young engineer. He'd just got married and he couldn't find a job. Um, he couldn't leave the country. Um, the Jews really were having money extorted for the, from them to pay for the war in Palestine. And life became untenable, really, for the Jews. Well, I remember uh, shortly after I uh, came into uh, this field in the early 1970s, I remember meeting uh, a young uh, Iraqi Jew from uh, Baghdad uh, who was then working in Boston, which is where I was working. And he um, told us about the uh, the mass hangings, the hanging of, I think, nine from the community, and that was in the late 60s. Um, what Now, at that point, now we're, we're, we're going almost 20 years beyond when your family left, what was the community like at that point when that occurred? Well, in fact, um, while I was growing up in the 1960s, I still had relatives um, in Baghdad. They were amongst the 3,000 or so Jews who, who still remained there. And um, in 1967, um, as you will recall, the Six-Day War broke out, and it was a catastrophic defeat for the Arabs. And the Iraqi regime turned on the Jews still remaining in Iraq and started persecuting them. Um, uh, they, were, they cut off um, people's phones, uh, they froze people's bank accounts, and above all, they wouldn't let these Jews leave. And they arrested um, nine Jews at random and accused them of spying for Israel. They put on a show trial, and these nine Jews were executed in Liberation Square on the 27th of January 1969, along with five other non-Jews. Non um, and this was just the start, really, because um, upwards of 40 other Jews were arrested, jailed, and never seen again. We still don't know what's happened to them. So it was a terrible time. Uh, we've just marked the 50th anniversary of those hangings. Uh, there was a memorial uh, service in Beavis Marks, which is, which is the oldest synagogue in London. Um, and there were other uh, memorials, I think, in, uh, in, in New York, in Montreal, and possibly elsewhere. But it was a very traumatic time. And most of the remaining uh, Jews of Iraq actually managed to leave illegally. They were smuggled out of uh, northern Iraq with the help of the Kurds um, and over the border into Iran, which uh, seems unbelievable now, but uh, Iran was then um, friendly with Israel. So we've talked about Iraq, but paint the, the broader picture of, of Jews in the Arab world, let's say, using 1950 as a, a point of departure? Yes, well, um, as you know, the Arab League states, seven Arab League states, declared war on Israel in 1948. Um, 
And we now know that um, the Arab League actually drafted a law persecuting uh, their Jewish citizens. So in effect, they declared a second war against their non-combatant Jews. And this involved treating these Jews as the minority of Palestine. In other words, they were punishing the Jews um, for what the Israelis were doing. Um, so this persecution involved arrests, um, it involved uh, charges of spying, um, charges of, uh, of Zionism, which was very loosely defined. I mean, how do you define being, you know, Zionist activity? Is it receiving a letter from Palestine? Is it having a prayer shawl? Um, you know, how do you define it? And of course, Jews were arrested on the slightest pretext. And of course, there were examples of Jews being sacked from their jobs, uh, not being able to earn a living, and uh, they were not allowed to leave the country. So they effectively hostages. And there were large Jewish communities. Uh, Egypt had a large community, uh, Algeria. Uh, Morocco, uh, uh, Tunisia, North Africa, Libya, um, uh, so and not to mention um, uh, Syria, which uh, had a large community as well at, at that time. So this was across the board, uh, the Arab League uh, mandate to do this, and then country by country, this was happening uh, across the across the map. Yes, that certainly applies to the Arab League countries. But countries like uh, Morocco and Tunisia were actually not independent at the time. They were still under French control. But um, they were also if affected by a wave of sort of popular anti-Semitism. And there were instances of violence. For instance, riots broke out in Morocco uh, in 1948 and 1948. Jews um, were killed. Um, 1948 was also a terrible year for popular violence um, across the board, from Syria to Aden uh, to uh, Egypt and Libya. In fact, in Libya, there had been a terrible pogrom in 1945, three years before Israel was declared, and more violence erupted in 1948. And uh, several, you know, s several dozen Jews were were murdered then. And you mentioned um, Nazi influence in Iraq. Uh, what about uh, in other places uh, in the Middle East? Um, well, it was most pronounced in Iraq because Iraq had actually gained independence in 1932. Although British influence was still very strong, and the government remained pro-British, uh, but uh, Iraq, of course, was the only Arab country where the pro-Nazis took power, and this happened for two months in 1941, uh, leading, leading up to that terrible massacre I mentioned earlier called the Farhud in June 1941. But I would say that um, although uh, the other Arab countries were um, under British influence or even French control, the, um, there was a lot of popular 
sympathy with with the Nazis um, for several reasons. One was, of course, the Germans were hostile to the British and the French, and the Arabs uh, were also hostile to the British and the French because these were the colonial powers. And the other reason was, of course, that uh, the Germans were hostile to the Jews. <laughs> so it made sense. Um, well, we had the situation uh, where the, um, the Mufti of Jerusalem, um, uh, Haj al-Amin al-Husseini, uh, was um, not only a sympathizer, but uh, an active uh, collaborator. Yeah, absolutely. And he was in Baghdad for two years um, after the failure of the Arab revolt in Palestine. He was exiled to Baghdad in 1939. And he never ceased to try and overthrow the pro-British government, uh, along with a, a group of pro-Nazi officers and the nationalist Rashid Ali al-Ghalani. Um, so he incited anti-Jewish hatred throughout that period. Then down into the 1960s, now these the, the populations continued uh, to get smaller and smaller, um, you mentioned the Six-Day War, um, and then after that, um, what was the status of, of Jewish communities in that later period? Well, there were very few Jews left in many of these countries. I mean, by, by the early 21st century, uh, there were only a few hundred left in, in Iraq. There were just a few dozens left in in Libya. In fact, I think the last uh, Libyan Jew died in 2005, something like that. Um, in Algeria today, there are no Jews at all. Uh, there's there's hardly any, you know, sort of viable communities there, with the exception of Morocco and Tunisia, where there there are still functioning synagogues, still communities like in Gerba. But uh, even then, the community is down to 1% of its previous population. Well, I know in Morocco, uh, the, the, the history, at least over the past um, 20 years, 30 years, um, has been uh, to, to highlight um, the remaining Jewish community um, in a number of different ways. I think that... Uh, Rights for Jews were incorporated into the most recent Moroccan constitution, uh, but and as you say, there is a there is a critical mass uh, of of Jews there. But uh, as you're pointing out, pretty much everywhere else, uh, very few left. I know I was deeply involved uh, many years ago, forty years ago, in the effort uh, to um, uh, help and to assist uh, the Jewish community of of Syria. Uh, to to leave, it was uh, uh, living under great difficulty, um, ghettoized really, um, and that community uh, in the early '90s more or less was depopulated as well. When the doors were briefly opened and they left, so I, I understand what you're saying. When the population has uh, uh, been reduced by so much, um, that um, there is. Uh, uh, really, uh, uh, very little left to uh, to talk about in terms of uh, actual communal life. Yeah, that's it's the sad uh, truth, unfortunately. 
And these, these were communities that are thousands of years old. I think it, it's often forgotten that um, most of them predate Islam by about a thousand years. Uh, they are effectively the indigenous communities of these countries. And they made uh, a huge impact on the culture of these countries. What are the main uh, myths uh, which the story of the Jews from Arab lands uh, can help to dispel? What, 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 are, what are the myths that are out there and uh, how can we respond to it? Your book is one way. What, what, can, what can people do to talk about this story, which was largely under wraps for many years uh, and now uh, clearly is out in the open? We were, B'nai B'rith was involved in uh, supporting a resolution in the U.S. Senate a few years ago, uh, which uh, um, memorialized uh, the the um, Jewish communities of the Arab world uh, and talked about the uh, large number of, of refugees who were forced out. But what can what can people do to talk about it and to uh, advance the story uh, about their condition and their history? Yeah, well, I think uh, B'nai B'rith obviously made a huge contribution to raising awareness of this issue. Um, I think this issue is important for peace uh, because there can't be a fair and just peace uh, if it's built on lies, if it's built on leaving out half the facts. And, and the Jews from Arab countries really constitute a very important um, historical fact. You know, these Jews were um, driven out. It was a forced exodus, and they are entitled to justice. Um, so that, you know, we commend what B'nai B'rith and other uh, organizations have been doing to advance this issue. Uh, but I do believe that it is central to dispelling certain myths which are actually very topical at the moment. Um, and for instance, uh, the, the myth that Jews are, you know, white European settlers that came, um, you know, to, to, to establish a colonial implant in, in Israel. I mean, absolutely not true. The Jews are the original in, inhabitants of the Middle East uh, and North Africa. They've been there for thousands of years. You know, the interlopers really are, are, are the Muslim Arabs who conquered the area in the seventh century. Um, the, another myth is that Jews always lived in harmony with Muslims up until uh, the establishment of Israel not true. We can point to plenty of examples of, um, you know, disharmony between the communities. There was the occasional pogrom, there was the occasional forced conversion, um, and we really, you know, need to dispel that myth. Um, I could go on. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you another question, Lynn. Um, one of the things that uh, we've been talking about uh, is the issue of, of restitution. Um, there was a great deal of uh, Jewish property uh, that was confiscated uh, when the Jews fled. Um, and I've heard, you know, estimates, uh, quite, quite large estimates in terms of valuations uh, of, of offices and homes and, and shops uh, and, and uh, land 
that was simply that was simply taken. Um, what what should we be doing about that? Well, um, of course, it is a huge issue because uh, the Jews left um, a great deal of property and assets in Arab countries. Um, nobody really knows how much, you know, what the value was of all this stuff. Um, and there are all sorts of different estimates. But one thing you can be sure of, the Jews were an urban population. Um, and they had synagogues, they had schools, uh, they owned a, a, a lot of property in um, in Arab capitals, for instance. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, there was a wealthy class of Egyptian Jews who had um, mansions, really, around Tahrir Square in Cairo. Um, and they had a lot of property that um, that is now um, foreign embassies. Uh, these, these, com these properties were taken over, they were seized. Uh, to give you an example, um, uh, the home of the Russian ambassador uh, used to belong to a Jewish family. Um, Mrs. Sadat's residence, that's the um, the wife, the widow of uh, Anwar Sadat, uh, that was owned by a Jew. The Pakistani embassy, the South Korean embassy, the Swiss embassy, the German embassy, the Canadian embassy, the Dutch embassy. Um, and just to give you an example, really, um, we need to quantify um, you know, all this property, I think, uh, you know, to, to put a value on it in order to get a, an idea of really what was lost. Um, but, I mean, it is, it is so important to, to actually have this issue on the table in an eventual peace negotiation. Well, I think it, there's, you know, one other very important point, and here perhaps on that we can conclude, and there's so much to talk about, uh, about the this story of the Jews from the Arab lands. Um, but, you know, for years and years and years, uh, the, the public uh, impression has been that there was one refugee uh, issue in the Middle East. Uh, we know that, in fact, uh, there was a very large refugee issue when it came to the Jews in Arab countries. And yeah. uh, part of our um, agenda is uh, in effect to uh, play catch up here in uh, publicizing the fact that um, that these uh, uh, hundreds of thousands million people who lived in in these areas for for so long for millennia uh, were expelled and and fortunately they did find a home many of them in Israel and many of them outside like your family in the UK uh, nevertheless, uh, that, uh, the fact that homes were found uh, does not take away from the fact that uh, uh, these people were expelled uh, from their, uh, their only place that they knew for generation after generation. So the importance of your book, Lynn, in telling this story really makes a great contribution uh, to understanding the story. Well, thank you for telling for saying that. <laughs> it's um, yes. Um, well, I should. I hope that the book will make a difference to people's perceptions. As you say, there was a huge number of of Jews who became refugees who were forced out against their will, 
uh, of homes which they'd occupied for generations. And this fact has to be recognized. Um, it was the largest exodus of non-Muslims uh, from the Middle East, a larger exodus than Palestinians from Israel, and the largest number of non-Muslims to leave their homes up until the great um, exodus of Christians following the 2003 invasion of, of Iraq. Well, Lynn, thank you for uh, spending the time with us today. The book is Uprooted, How 3,000 Years of Jewish Civilization in the Arab World Vanished Overnight by Lynn Julius. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please visit our website, b'nebrith.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Lynn Julius, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. Podcast.